Good morning. I hope everyone is doing well this morning. All right. All right. We're going to turn to Psalm, Psalm 90 this morning. If you don't have your Bible with you, there's some Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. Psalm 90 this morning. And if you don't mind, we're just going to park out in Psalm 90. All right, so we won't be turning back and forth, so you can turn to there, and that will be our text for today. Let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to come before you this morning, that we can worship you, Lord. And we pray that our worship of you is in spirit and in truth. Lord, I I pray that you would come now, Lord, and speak to us. That, Lord, you would use your servant's mouth and your words would go forth this morning. Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way that people wouldn't see me as I fumble and bumble and do things, but they would hear you, Lord, today. So, Lord, may I decrease so that you might increase. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. And we ask you to open our hearts and minds to your truth this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You live in a fallen world. And though you may exhaust yourself attempting to escape from it, you can't for the simple reason that fallenness is everywhere, even inside you which means an outlook on life distinguished by idealism is naive and lacking discernment. You also live in a world in which the Lord God reigns. A world invaded by the Gospel of Jesus Christ that contains the potency to transform to which multitudes testify. Which means an outlook on life distinguished by cynicism is tragic and lacking integrity. Idealism and cynicism, antithetical poles reflecting life from different perspectives, and frankly, they're both less than adequate. But if we refuse these, my friends, what are we left with? What are we left with if we refuse idealism and we refuse cynicism? The question that we will attempt to answer this morning, my friends, is this. What should be the proper outlook on life for the mature Christian man or woman? Again, what should be the proper outlook on life for the mature Christian man or woman? The answer is a brutally honest 
realism. It's what Psalm 90 is all about. It's a sacred song about the way things really are. It's the ripened testimony of an old man, the man of God, Moses, who has known life at its happiest, and he's known it at its harshest. He has seen all there is to see and endured all there is to endure. And this is not the idealism here as we read about in Psalm 90 of the immature. And it's not the cynicism of the bitter. It's the honest realism of a convergence of both divine truth and 120 years in a fallen world. I admit to you, church, that you'll not find these lyrics in a Hallmark greeting card. But these lyrics represent spiritual maturity at its very best. So let me ask you this question again. What should distinguish your outlook on life as a mature Christian man or woman? This is what will be progressively clear to you in three sequential concepts or points that emerge in the unfolding of these lyrics. Here's the first point. Are you ready? Your life is comparatively brief. Your life is comparatively brief. It's not the kind of thing that you'll find etched on a precious moment statuette. Your life is comparatively brief. It's true. But you say, compared to who? Compared to Adonai, Lord. Compared to God who is Master, who is Sovereign. Lord. Verse 1. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever You had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. This is a glorious statement about God, isn't it? Of which we could easily give a month of Sundays. But given the emphasis of this entire song, this is introduced here now as a point of comparison. Here are a couple of observations. To begin with, notice, notice this. This is not a God that is coldly detached from human history. This is a God that is directly engaged in it. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Even more, if I were to rephrase it more literally, You have been our refuge. You have been our shelter. You have been our oasis of refreshment in generation after generation after generation. This is not a God who keeps Himself at safe distance only to be admired by weird theological types. This is an intimately involved God. What do I mean? How has Moses spent his life? So in the first 40 years, home for Moses was the palace of Egypt. It's a pretty sweet deal. In the middle 40 years, it's not as luxurious, but he lives in the land of Midian, over which time eventually comes to feel like home. He marries and has a family there. And what about the final 40 years? 
while he's qualified to join AARP and sit in a rocking chair, God tells him to lead his people, two million of them, through the wilderness into the land of promise, all which means you understand that from the time that Moses is 80 until he's 120, there is no permanent mailing address. There will not be the familiar flower garden that he can return to every afternoon. There won't be a family living room marked by long-standing holiday traditions. And there won't be an attic filled with dusty treasures, memories. And yet, Moses says, despite all the wanderings, I have never been homeless. Because home is not so much about a place as it is about a person. The person that you should love more than any other person. The person who loves you and protects you and cares for you and seeks your greatest good. And Lord, Moses says, you are these things for me. Just as you've always been for your people, you are our home. For Moses, the thirst for location is quenched in a provision of communion. He, God, is the ultimate homemaker. He is the place of security. He is a provision of care and tenderness and protection. This is a God who is warmly and intimately engaged in human history and yet at the same time now, transcendent to it, external to it. Verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now church, take a very good look at this. This is not emphasizing mere pre-existence, that God predated the primordial events of creation. No, this here is something greater. It's stressing eternality in both directions, from everlasting to everlasting, prior to the creation of the earth, subsequent to the destruction of the earth. God eternally is. He's engaged in human history, verse 1, and he's sovereign over it, verse 2. This is a rich theology, folks, most certainly, but it isn't here to teach us rich theology in and of itself. It's here now to establish a point of comparison of what Moses has come to learn about us, verse 3. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of Adam, O children of man. His point here, it's really quite simple. God is majestically eternal, and by comparison, humanity is measurably transient. In fact, Moses says, just to to show you how transient humanity is, look at verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. And to be even more emphatic, he says, or as a watch in the night. In those days, it was the smallest 
measure of military time, a watch in the night, about three hours. It's as though God is looking through a microscope of eternity. He's looking through that at the lifespan of a human and seeing that it's so puny, so tiny. Even when you consider the oldest man ever to live. This is why Moses mentions 1,000. What is the name of the oldest man who ever lived? Methuselah. How long did Methuselah live? 969 years. So what does Moses do? He simply rounds up to the nearest 100 and says, You may marvel at the longest expression of human life, but when you set it in comparison to God, it's nearly nothing at all. He illustrates further, verse 5. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Or better yet, it, it, it could be said this way, you sweep them away in the sleep of death, like, a, like the rushing torrents that overpower everything in their path. That come he slow or come he fast, it is but death that comes at last. What is Moses trying to get at here? What's he pressing? Look, notice... The second part of verse 5 here. Like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. In the arid climate of the Middle East, an evening rain can cause a fresh carpet of green grass to grow overnight the very next morning. But by nightfall, the daytime sun will have scorched it to death. My point, or the point that Moses makes, is it's amazingly transient, notoriously impermanent, just like the existence of you and I. Fleeting, momentary, temporal. So Moses here is not interested in the sentiments that sell greeting cards. His burden is to shatter any lingering vestiges of adolescent idealism and replace it with a mature realism so that as a Christian you would embrace the way things really are. That despite our medical prolescence, our scientific technology, our expressions of care and compassion, life is comparatively brief. Every one of us has been given a built-in time fuse. Some burn quickly, some burn slowly, but at the end, they all burn. Every birth singles the beginning of a countdown that inevitably zeroes in on a forced exit from this life. And how will the gray stone read? Here lies David Snyder. And below my name, there will be two dates, that of my birth and that of my death. And then in the middle will be a symbol that reflects the totality of my life. A dash. That's all. That's it. And what will you think of on that day? 
when given the opportunity to preach, his sermons would last forever. But life is comparatively brief. Why? Why? Why is this so? According to Hallmark, you'd think I have a thing about against greeting cards today. <laughs> Death is a misfortune. Death is an unexpected challenge. Death is even the natural end of life. But Moses will not let the sentimentalism stand. He, he, he knows this because he doesn't want it to distort reality. What do I mean? Look at it here. Who affects the conclusion of a person's life? Verse 3, look at it. You return man to dust. Does this sound like a misfortune? You sweep them away as with a flood. Does that sound like the natural end of life? I bet you're thinking, wait a minute. Are you saying that death is God's doing? Listen to this again, verse 3. You return man to dust. Does that phrase ring any bells? Do you remember that? Does it sound familiar? For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Who spoke those words? God did. What was the occasion of speaking them? The fall of man in the garden, right? What was the pre-announced consequence of that disobedience? Your life is comparatively brief. Why? Here's the second point. Your sin is egregiously offensive. Your sin is egregiously offensive. Your life is comparatively brief. Why? Your sin is egregiously offensive. Verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. This is meaning here. It means to be brought to an end by your anger. It means to be finished. It means to be spent. It means to be consumed to such an extent that there's nothing left to give. By your wrath we are dismayed. It's a word used to speak about an army facing overwhelming disaster. There are images here, church, that speak of death. And, and they're the consequence of what? The outrage of God. His righteously offended holiness, otherwise known as His wrath. Now, of course, friends, every single week we come here, we sing about the love of God. God is loving. In fact, God is totally loving. But God is not exclusively loving. 
He is loving, but He's not lax. He is also light in the One in whom which no darkness can or does exist. And so His wrath is His consistent expression of His holiness in response to something else. In response to what? Verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. To what end? For all our days will pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Do you hear the weariness? Do you hear the feelings of defeat in this? Even depression. You felt this way. Have you ever buried a loved one? A parent? A spouse? A child? A grandparent? A close friend? Verse 10. The years of our life are 70, or by or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Poof. That's the idea. It's gone. It's like a vapor. It's just gone. But once again, Moses is concerned with more than mere fact. He wants to give you the undergirding reason for it. Verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger? That is, his anger against sin. Have you ever walked in a neighborhood and noticed beware of dog signs on gates and fences? I mean, I have. Have you ever, like me, have been inclined to wonder, is it true? Is, is a dog really guarding this house? Or is it just a fabrication to get people to behave? That the bark, pardon the pun, is worse than the bite. Is there integrity to these signs? Does reality really stand behind, behind them? I was reading about an old story from a local newspaper. The newspaper that ran this story, it was about a burglar who had been casing out neighborhoods. The M.O. of this burglar, burglar was quite simple. He would look for f- homes left unguarded by people leaving for vacation. Then under the cover of darkness, he would break inside and take all their valuables. On one evening, however, this burglar was confronted with a surprise that brought all his schemes to an immediate end. Earlier that afternoon, the burglar looked on as a family loaded their suitcases into the trunk of their family car and drove away. So until dark, the burglar waited. He waited patiently. And then, feeling very secure, he approached the front door and rang the doorbell. Just as he expected, no answer. 
So he picked the lock, picked it, and let himself in. Having closed the door behind him, he then called into the darkness, Is anyone home? He was stunned when he heard a voice in reply. I see you, and Jesus sees you. Terrified, the burglar called out and said, Who's there? The voice came back, I see you, and Jesus sees you. The burglar, he fumbled for his flashlight. He he flipped it on and pointed it in the direction of the voice and was instantly relieved when his light revealed a caged parrot reciting the phrase, I see you and Jesus sees you. The burglar, he was relieved. He exploded into laughter and he turned on the lights. And then he saw it. Beneath the parrot's cage was a huge Doberman pincher. And then the parrot said, Attack, Jesus! Attack! (laughs) Beware of God is not an intimidating but empty fret. Adam and Eve discovered that God's bite was far worse than his bark. Verse 11, Who considers the power of your anger? The idea here, church, is who can begin to grasp the intensity of it? And your wrath, according to the fear of you. Literally, the way it reads in Hebrews is like this. Like your fear... Your fury, like your fear, your fury. He's saying here, Moses is saying that if we had our wits about us, the extent of our fear should be proportionate to the extent to which God is angry at us. But the point here is that sin has so negatively compromised us that we no longer have the capacity to understand how egregious our offenses are to God. Who considers, your, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The point is here, no one does. You and I, left to ourselves, cannot begin to measure the extent of God's anger at our sin. So it's, it's why we shrug our shoulders and say, Why is God so upset? Why is he so unhappy? Why is he treating me so unfairly? I could never love a God who gave cancer to my mom. I could never love a God who let a nasty virus into this world. I could never love a God that allows children to die. You hear this kind of talk everywhere, friends. And every time you hear it, every time you hear it, you need to think about it maturely. 
You need to recognize it for what it really is. It's an illustration of what Moses is saying right here. The inability of fallen human beings to rightly discern the extent of God's outrage against sin. Death is not an unjust tragedy. Death is not an unfair misfortune. It is something more far more intentioned and consequential. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, it shall die. And the just and equitable response to human rebellion against pure holiness, it is what God does, it is just. I remember 1999, December 31st, New Year's Eve. I was at my parents' house sitting bedside next to my dying grandmother. My grandmother was struggling to take her last breaths. I don't know if you guys have been there before. She would not see the turning of the new century. It was there. It was there that it became so plain to me. This is what sin has done. Moses had simply traced human mortality back to its roots, acknowledging what it was that God Himself declared in the garden, that the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. Adam ate from that tree, and from that moment on, death as an expression of God's anger began its relentless march through the entire human race. And by virtue of my solidarity with the human race, I will die. It's a thing that you must pronounce as you lay me in the grave. This is not an act of injustice. This is not a tragic event. Don't you dare indulge your ignorance by finding fault with God. He has never been unrighteous. He has been altogether gracious to me to give me as long as I've had. This is God's judgment on sin. Church, this is honest realism. Reality. It's thinking maturely about what is. Your life is comparatively brief because your sin is egregiously offensive. And think about dear Moses. I was recently asked, how did God give Moses the first five books of the Bible? And the exact answer, I don't know, but I know he was inspired and he was a prophet. And God spoke to him directly. But this question, how did Moses feel this this reality in his bones? How was his own idealism shattered? You remember what happens, right? Israel arrives at the edge of the promised land. Twelve spies are sent out on a reconnaissance mission. When they return, ten of the twelve say, It's a good land! Just like God said, flowing with milk and honey. But the people, they're massive, they're gigantic, will be slaughtered if we attempt to take that land. 
And so, congregational government prevails. Majority rules. Fear drives out faith. Moses is voted out of office. Sounds just like some church congregations you may have heard of. But in the process, divine holiness is outraged. Because Moses hasn't been rejected. God has. And so the dark side of goodness, justice is aroused. And the entire adult generation of Israelites are now placed on death row. Forty years of suffering. One year for each day the spies were in Canaan. Until that entire generation is buried in the sands of the wilderness. 600,000 men, not including their wives. 1.2, 1.3 million people dead in the desert. But that's not fair. And what about Moses? Forty years of leading a despondent people. And in one act of uncontrolled anger, he dishonors God and is barred from entering the promised land. Deuteronomy 3 says, The Lord was angry with Moses, the very same word used here in verse 9, so that the wilderness becomes his graveyard as well. But that's not fair. Every time you say that, you've proven Moses' point here. The inability of fallen human beings to rightly discern the extent of God's outrage against sin. Some time ago, on a sunny September a stern-faced, plainly-dressed man could be standing on the corner of a street in the busy Chicago Loop area. As folks hurried by on their way to lunch or business, he would solemnly lift his right arm, and pointing to the person nearest him, he would loudly say the single word, GUILTY! Then, without any change of expression, he would resume his stance for a few moments before repeating the whole thing again. Again, raising his arm and pointing in the solemn pronouncing of the one word, guilty. The effect on this man's behavior, on folks passing by, was extraordinary, almost eerie. A few times it could be heard as the man would turn to another, how did he know? No doubt others had similar thoughts. How did he know indeed? Guilty. Everyone guilty? Guilty of what? Guilty of lying? Guilty of stealing, irregardless of the item's worth. Guilty of unfaithfulness to a faithful wife. Guilty of evil thoughts or evil plans. Guilty before whom? Has anyone seen? Will they be likely to notice it? How does he know about it? But that isn't technically illegal, is it? I can make it up. I will give it back. I will apologize. I wasn't myself when I did it. No one knows about it. I'm going to quit. It's a dangerous habit. 
I wouldn't want my children to see me. How can I ever straighten it out? Everyone guilty? You? Me? Who can survive the wrath of God? Adam couldn't. He died. Abraham couldn't. He died. Moses couldn't. He died. Will it be any different for you? Your life is comparatively brief because your sins are egregiously offensive. And the very fact that you think you're not that bad, that in the end God will let the good outweigh the bad, only proves the extent of your condition. You are paralyzed in your dilemma because you don't possess the capacity to discern the extent of it. How's that for shattering idealism? You say, well, that's enough, that's enough, David, to drive me to cynicism. No. No, no. It's an honest realism that you need. That you are altogether helpless. But, but, you are not hopeless. Church, you are closest to God's grace when by His grace you come to recognize your desperate need for it. You will never truly seek God until you first abandon all hope in yourself. You say, but why would I do that? God is angry at me. Yes. While it's true that God's angry with you, that God is totally angry with you, God is not exclusively angry. Moses knows this, and now here he banks on it. Here is a mature and brutally honest realism. Your life is comparatively brief because your sin, sins are egregiously offensive. But... You have great reason to hope this morning, friends. Why? Because of my third point. The third point here. Your God is characteristically gracious. Your God is characteristically gracious. Learn from Moses, my friends. He doesn't fight reality. He doesn't deny reality. He owns reality. And then he asks God to do what only God can do. I'm going to summarize that this morning in four simple words. Repair, resend, refresh, restore. Four words. Repair, resend, refresh, restore. Repair. It's what Moses asked God to do. Repair. It's what you need to ask God to do this very morning. Repair what? Repair my thinking. Verse 12. So, therefore, consequently, in light of the context of everything that has just been said, especially verses 7 through 11, so, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. But Moses here is not asking 
God for an accounting lessons, my friend. He's asking, he's, he's not asking, tell me how many days I have left so I can be smart in how I use them. That's not what he's doing. He's asking, help me to understand the very things that I lack, the capacity to understand that my life, including its days and its years, are brief because my sin is so egregious and you are so angry. Help me to understand that. Help me to comprehend that. Help me to appreciate that. Help me to get my head around it. In the third chapter of the Bible, it's the very thing that God told Adam in the garden after the fall. That life will be marked by sufferings and struggles and hardships and adversity and pains and ultimately death because of sin. Augustine said, the beginning of knowledge is to know yourself as sinner. Moses here says it's the heart of wisdom. Don't deny it. Don't run from it. Don't settle for a church that refuses to mention it. Say to God, teach me to think about life as you do. Teach me to understand sin and your holy, volatile reaction to it. Repair my thinking. Second word, rescind. Rescind what? Rescind your wrath. Notice verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. It actually reads in Hebrew, which is kind of weird, but it reads this way, repent, O Lord. Turn away from your anger and turn back towards me. How long will your anger last? Not that it's unjust. Have pity on your servant. Have compassion. In other words, Moses knows that he's guilty. He can't ask God to be fair. And now he can only plead with God to be compassionate. Third word, refresh. But what does Moses have in mind? Refresh your love. Verse 14 Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Oh God, we have experienced a long day's journey, and tonight into the morning, may it be your hesed, your loyal love that awakens us, your faithfulness and your mercy. He's, an, he's not asking God to give him stuff. He's asking God to give himself. Why? Because nothing satisfies like God. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Friends, Mature spirituality does not deny the existence of adversity. It acknowledges it along with all the reasons for it. The fall, the fallen world, sin, my sin, 
And yet on the basis of God's gracious love, rather than our merit, Moses prays for, listen, a compensation that is proportionally joyful as your afflictions are brutally severe. A compensation that is proportionally joyful as your afflictions are brutally severe. Have you asked God for this this morning? Have you asked for Him ever? That He would restore the bonds of His love for you? Will this prayer be answered? Absolutely. Will it be answered in this life? Yes. But finally and fully and ultimately on the day your salvation is consummated. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-17, we don't have time to turn, I'll read it to you, says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. We're not, my friends, exempt from the fall. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Refresh your love. It's what Moses is getting at when he says in verse 16, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Repair, rescind, refresh, and finally, restore. Restore what? Restore my significance. Restore my significance. It's true, my friends, that our lives are comparatively brief and they pass away with a sigh. But we can say to God, is this, though my life is fleeting and transient like sun-scorched grass, Lord, make my life count. Make the substance of it mean something. Make what I do in your estimation to have value and purpose. Verse 17, let the favor of our Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And by the way, have you noticed all through this section, Moses is entirely God-dependent. Look at it. Verse 12, teach us. Verse 13, return. Verse 13, have pity. Satisfy, verse 14. Make us glad, verse 15. Show your work, verse 16. Establish our work, verse 17. Moses is entirely dependent upon God's work. And not only that, he now banks everything on God's character. Notice, his pity, verse 13. God's steadfast love, verse 14. God's glorious power, verse 16. And God's favor, verse 17. My friends, this here is the stuff of real spiritual maturity. What should distinguish your outlook on life as a mature Christian man or woman? Not the idealism of the immature. 
or the cynicism of the bitter, but the brutally honest realism that embraces things the way they really are. Your life is comparatively brief because your sins are egregiously offensive. Why do you so desperately need to understand this? To drive you into the arms of a loving God who is characteristically gracious. The good news is only good news when you see it on the backdrop of the bad. You may be asking, is there any way for me to know this grace more concretely, more foundationally? And yes, my friends, because we have something that Moses never had, the basis for God's power and pity and work and favor and love to you. We have His own Son, Jesus Christ. He was, his life was comparis- comparatively brief. About 30 years. His, the sins placed upon him, our sins, were so egregiously offensive that he was, a swept, he was swept away in death. Even death on a cross. But God, who is characteristically gracious, raised Jesus from the dead, so now that even though you face death as a consequence of being a sinner, you never, ever, ever need to fear the wrath of this righteous God if in fact, Jesus is your Savior. Is He? He can be. If like Moses, you stake everything on Him. His grace, His mercy, and love. This, my friends, is what is real. This is the way things really are. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, Your Word, Your Word, is always true. Lord, You speak truth to us and sometimes we are influenced by this world and the sentimentalism of our culture. The lies and the deception of our culture, they grab us and they have staggering impact. But Lord, however, it's not because the truth has changed, it's because we have been influenced by other voices. Lord, help us to walk in in maturity as your people. Lord, we cannot afford to think it is spiritual to be idealistic. Nor can we afford to be imprisoned by cynicism, Lord. Both of these ways deny your gospel. May we approach life like Moses with a brutal realism. Lord, we acknowledge that our lives are comparatively brief and that our sins are egregious to you. But our hope, dear Lord, is the one who is characteristically gracious. Lord, Lord, help us to think this way. Help us to rest in your mercy and your grace and your love.
Lord, we rest in your Son, who is all of those things to us. And in his matchless name I pray, 